Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Day two of the Oath Keepers trial today. Prosecutors submitted the first piece of major evidence against the group. They're accused of a conspiracy to overthrow the government. Former President Trump is asking the Supreme Court to intervene in the Mar-a-Lago dispute. In question are roughly 100 documents marked as classified. The nation's highest court makes its first moves on cases involving vaccine mandates, gun rights and voting rights. Elon Musk changing course, saying he will go ahead with the deal to buy Twitter at the original price he offered, sending Twitter shares soaring today. It's 100 days since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. What the president announced today as the issue of abortion gained steam ahead of elections. And beloved country music icon Loretta Lynn died today. She's known for her rise to fame from a poor coal miner's daughter to the queen of country music. Today marks day two of the Oath Keepers trial. Members of the group have been charged with seditious conspiracy in the January 6th Capitol breach. Federal prosecutors introduced evidence obtained by someone who secretly recorded an alleged planning meeting. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. FBI agent Michael Palian told jurors Tuesday that the Oath Keepers held a nearly two-hour meeting in November of 2020 to discuss their plans for January 6th. That's according to a report by MSN. His testimony came as federal prosecutors played an audio recording in court of the alleged Oath Keepers planning meeting. The Oath Keepers described themselves as a group of American patriots dedicated to upholding the U.S. Constitution. Characterized by prosecutors as a far-right militia, Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes and four members have been charged with numerous felonies, including seditious conspiracy in connection with the January 6th Capitol breach. The audio, secretly recorded by an attendee and turned over to the FBI, is of an alleged call to discuss where the Oath Keepers' fight would go next. In the recording, Rhodes repeatedly said that people should put pressure on then-President Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act. The Insurrection Act gives U.S. presidents authority to deploy active-duty military to maintain or restore peace in times of crisis. CBS News reports that defense attorneys agree the defendants hoped the former president would invoke the act, but contend the Oath Keepers did little wrong since Trump never invoked it. Prosecutors also presented the jury with text messages investigators took from defendants' phones. Rhodes and other members of the Oath Keepers allegedly stated they would respond with weapons if Trump called on them and that they would collect weapons in nearby Virginia because the gun laws were less strict than in D.C. Defense attorneys say this shows the Oath Keepers were law-abiding and their hope for the Insurrection Act to be invoked proves they intended to follow the law. All five defendants have pleaded not guilty. They face a maximum sentence of 20 years behind bars. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And former President Trump is asking the Supreme Court to intervene in the dispute over the materials that the FBI seized from his Mar-a-Lago estate. The Trump team asks the high court to overturn a lower court ruling. This would allow the special master to see documents that were marked as classified. There were roughly 100 of them. The Trump team said this is necessary so that the special master can determine whether the documents are in fact classified and whether they are personal records or presidential records. And the nation's highest court is wasting no time in its new term. 
The Supreme Court has rejected a challenge to President Biden's vaccine mandates for health care workers. The justices previously allowed the mandate to stand while leaving open the possibility of ruling in favor of state challengers in the future. And in another high-profile case, the court has overturned a lower court ruling on a Massachusetts gun law. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with the details. In the first ruling of their new term, the Supreme Court Monday reversed a ruling on a Massachusetts gun law that had imposed a lifetime ban on purchasing handguns on anyone convicted of a crime involving a gun. Uh, you know, in these cases, specifically in Massachusetts, many of these are nonviolent misdemeanors. Um, you know, it's not that they committed a crime with a gun or it's not even that they hurt somebody, uh, and now they're no longer allowed to defend themselves or their family. The case involved a Massachusetts man who was arrested in 2004 in D.C. for carrying a handgun while entering a museum. 14 years later, he was denied a permit to buy a firearm. The high court's ruling returns the case to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit for further consideration in light of the Supreme Court's ruling this past June, which recognized a constitutional right to carry guns in public. Have you all noted an increase in the purchase of guns since the Supreme Court has been ruling more pro-Second Amendment? The past few years in general have led to a huge increase due to COVID, the you know protests of last year or the year before, and um, the rise in crime in general has led to a huge increase. And in another high-profile case that the Supreme Court is taking up just after kicking off their new term, they're looking at the implications of the Voting Rights Act. Now, what's happening here is a group of Alabama voters wants to get a ruling from the court that would require Alabama to redraw their congressional maps and create a second black majority voting district. Alabama is pushing back, saying that this would be um, unconstitutional. It would be an example of race-based sorting. That's what Alabama is saying. Now, it's unclear when the Supreme Court will issue the ruling on this. Justices may wait until after the November elections because midterms are just weeks away. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Turning now to tech news, the world's richest man, Elon Musk, plans to go ahead with his deal to buy out Twitter. In a letter to the social media company, Musk's lawyers say he intends to proceed with the deal on the terms set in April. That means Musk will offer Twitter shareholders $54.20 per share, or in total $44 billion, to take the company private. The letter was made public today. Twitter confirmed it received the letter. Musk and Twitter are suing each other after the buyout deal almost fell apart earlier this year. Musk says Twitter wasn't transparent about fake accounts on the platform, but Twitter wants to force him to go through with the deal. A trial is set for later this month in Delaware. But if this new plan goes ahead, a trial won't be necessary. Commenting on the news, Wedbush analyst Dave Ives says this is a smart move for Musk, which will save him all the legal headaches. Many prominent conservatives celebrated the news. One of them said the first thing Musk should do after taking over is to bring back President Trump. Twitter banned him last year after the January 6th Capitol breach. And Twitter's stock jumped 22 percent today, reaching $52, which is close to Musk's offer. And President Biden announces new guidelines on the issue of abortion. It comes 100 days after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. It's been exactly 100 days since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And the White House on Tuesday tried to highlight the impact of that decision and what it says has been happening since then. 
Let's take a listen. The Dobbs decision created a health care crisis in America. We're seeing extremist laws pop up around the country that are having a ripple effect far beyond the health rights of a pregnant woman. Biden announces $6 million in new grants to expand abortion access. He also rolls out new guidelines from Department of Education telling universities to protect reproductive health care access. Students need access to health care to thrive in school and in life, and that includes reproductive health care. But those comments sparked criticism from Republicans, with Congresswoman Mary Miller saying the Biden agenda for young students is castration and abortion. The meeting also comes as the White House seeks to drum up support for Democratic midterm candidates. And you hear Biden taking aim at Republicans. Because Republicans in Congress want to pass a law to take away the right to choose for every woman in every state in every county. More than a dozen states have effectively banned abortions following the Supreme Court ruling. But all of such states do provide an exception for when the mother's life is in danger, and many provide exceptions for rape and incest. Biden, meanwhile, calls on Congress to codify Roe and on Americans to vote Democrat. But right now, we have, uh, we're short a handful of votes. So the only way it's going to happen is if the American people make it happen. That being said, it is highly unlikely that a Congress would be able to codify Roe. That's because Democrats currently only have a slim majority in the Senate, and the future control of both chambers is still up in the air until November. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. A silent pandemic has spread among American youth. Gender dysphoria and a radical medical experiment billed as its proper treatment. That's according to a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, Jay Richards. He warns that with the passage of a new law in California last Friday, parents across the country can now lose custody of their daughters and sons if they resist the upending of natural puberty in that state. I spoke with Jay earlier today. Jay Richards, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, Newsom says that this law is about protecting parents' choices, but you say that it's an attack on parents' rights. Could you elaborate? Absolutely. I mean, it's really the best way to think of this law in California is that the governor has made California a magnet for children from other states who might be seeking so-called gender-affirming care, whether that be cross-sex hormones or even uh, double mastectomies uh, for, for minors. So needless to say, in some states, this is either prohibited or not available, or at the very least, parents have a say in that. We recognize parents have the primary right and responsibility to, for the upbringing and medical care of their children. What California essentially is doing is saying, okay, if a child can get his or her feet into the state of California, the, a California court can basically grant temporary custody to the state, take the custody away from the parents so that the child can uh, receive these these so-called treatments. I mean, I, I can't imagine a more direct affront to parents' rights in other states than this. And the law also mandates that in certain circumstances, doctors must conceal a child's medical information from their parents. That's exactly right. And, and in fact, even under a court-ordered subpoena, doctors can uh, hide this information. In fact, they're, they're more or less required to do so. So in other words, if you're a parent, let's say there's a mom and a dad and they're in a custody battle with their child. One of, one of the parents wants the child to start cross-sex hormones, and so he takes her to California from their home state of Arkansas. 
Uh, he can get this, this procedures done, uh, no questions asked, and the records will be sealed. So the mom back in Arkansas doesn't even know what's happened or doesn't have any evidence of it. I mean, I, the, the sort of ideological nature of this law uh, is staggering. California was already doing this to California citizens in which Child Protective Services could take children away from parents who didn't want uh, to allow their children to be treated in this way. Now they're extending it to the entire country. And there's concern that in these circumstances, non-custodial parents could use this law to get custody of their children by facilitating transgender treatments for them. What's yeah, that's exactly that? right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's what's so strange about this. So normally, if a, a non-custodial parent takes a child across state lines, states cooperate. I mean, it's a it's a form of kidnapping. But in this case, you have the non-custodial parent actually, uh, you know, in, in some kind of uh, dispute. As long as they get the child to the state of California, that's what matters. And under this law, California doctors can now send puberty-blocking drugs to minors in other states. What are your concerns here? Well, I mean, this is especially bizarre. And so in this case, uh, because of telemedicine, I mean, this really makes it very easy. And so a, a child, again, say someplace like Texas, uh, could just, just get on Zoom with a doctor in California, and the doctor could prescribe that child puberty-blocking drugs, which essentially freezes a child's development in place and cross-sex hormones, which that, that's testosterone for girls and estrogen for boys. Uh, th these are experimental treatments. These drugs are not approved by the FDA for these purposes. And so by definition, they're experimental. They have massive side effects. They're not reversible, re uh, despite the fact that people are told that. Um, and this could be happening uh, pretty much anywhere in the country unless it's stopped. I'm actually hoping that provision, because it may involve interstate commerce, will actually get struck down. But at the moment, uh, the legal status of this is, is unknown. Trans advocates say that transition surgeries and drugs save lives. But you say that medical care is being used as a disguise for the attack on parental rights here. Could you speak to that? Absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, there is a debate. Okay, you have children, including a massive increase of the number of children presenting with symptoms of gender dysphoria, in other words, a discomfort with their sex bodies. All of us want kids to be treated for that. What we know is that if kids are allowed to go through puberty, uh, engage in talk therapy, deal with underlying psychological comorbidities, the vast majority become comfortable with their bodies once they get through puberty. On the other hand, if kids are told that, well, they could be born in the wrong body, and so they need to transform their bodies to conform to a, uh, you know, a, a false understanding uh, of their person, that's gonna lead to a completely different treatment. And so we'd want really, really good evidence that this actually helps. We're told that so-called gender-affirming care reduces thoughts of suicide, suicide ideation, and, and actual suicide. None of the data bear that up. In fact, if you look at the best data we have, if anything, uh, uh, people that go through this, certainly kids that go through this, actually are more likely to commit suicide rather than less. And so, you know, we've got both a kind of worldview question what's, and a medical question, what's the best treatment for this? Uh, and then we've got these kind of fake science questions that are uh, unfortunately bolstering the ideological use of science like we see in California. The Constitution requires states to defer to each other's laws and jurisdictions. Do you think we can reasonably expect legal action from other states on this? That's what I'm really hoping for. I think, I mean, this clearly is a violation of the rights of other states because, I mean, it's the law is literally designed to do that. It's designed uh, to have California's uh, experimental medical treatments for, for minors uh, be able to claim jurisdiction over kids from other states as long as they can find their way into the state of California. So it, it literally creates an incentive 
for children to abandon their families who care the most for them. And so I do hope that other states are very quick to sue California, and I hope that uh, this law gets struck down very quickly. You've pointed to social media as a massive influence in spreading the trans movement, and children are increasingly exposed to these ideas in school as well. What do you think parents can do to protect their children here? Parents need to know that's happening. So if you have your kids in a school and you don't know whether they're being taught gender ideology, they probably are. Uh, insist on transparency, not just for curriculum, but also for, for any materials that are brought into class. And then frankly, find out what they're doing on social media. We know at least 65% of kids that first present with these symptoms get these initially from social media influencers who, who paint a rosy picture of what life like this is like. And so kids are getting it both from authority figures at school and from their social media. And parents really just can't be more careful on this stuff. In fact, I think they need to think of social media as a disease vector for a particular ideological contagion. And parental rights groups had urged Governor Newsom to veto the bill. Now that it's through, what else can they do to push back? Well, it's going to, unfortunately, at this point, it's going to take lawfare because it's, it's law in the state of California. And so California is going to have to be sued. We need organizations that have standing, certainly parents of other kids. Um, but but uh, legal groups are looking at this right now. It's Heritage Foundation was a part of a group that had urged uh, California not to do this. Um, I would expect major lawsuits in the near future. Jay Richards, Senior Research Fellow of the Heritage Foundation, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Three major medical groups are calling on the Department of Justice to investigate bomb threats that were made against children's hospitals that provide gender transitioning services. The groups say that medical professionals who provide these services are facing increased stress and fear. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. The American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, and the Children's Hospital Association have co-authored a letter to U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. The letter states, we urge you to investigate the organizations and individuals carrying out bomb threats and threats of personal violence against children's hospitals across the United States. Last month, a woman was charged with calling in a fake bomb threat to Boston's Children's Hospital, which provides gender transitioning services. And there are reports of similar threats against other children's hospitals that provide these services. The letter also states they have called on tech companies to prevent so-called disinformation on their platforms and called on the DOJ to prosecute those responsible for spreading disinformation. They want to criminalize these disagreements. I spoke with Dr. Richard Ammerling, the chief academic officer of The Wellness Company, a virtual care company that says it supports medical freedom. It's exactly the same tactic, seems to me, that they used against parents who were objecting to uh, critical race theory, for example, at school. The letter also says the medical groups stand with the medical professionals providing evidence-based health care, including gender transitioning services to children and adolescents. What are they talking about, evidence-based gender-affirming surgery? Because some body says it's okay, you know, some academy, some group of so-called experts says it's okay, it's now evidence-based. This is what I've written about previously as an example of the tyranny of evidence-based medicine. You give some, of, some group of so-called experts authority to review literature and decide what is true and what is valid and they then run wild with it. And now you can't even disagree anymore. And if you do, 
you're spreading disinformation, misinformation, you're going to get attacked, you're going to get delicensed, you're going to have your specialty certification attacked, and possibly now you're actually going to get prosecuted by the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland. We reached out to the Department of Justice for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. Locker room issues at a Vermont high school. The girls of the school's volleyball team have to change one by one in a bathroom stall because they're uncomfortable with a trans student on the team. Two girls of Randolph Union High School's volleyball team in Vermont reportedly addressed a trans teammate who was born male and identifies as female. The girls say they asked the teammate to leave the locker room while they changed, but the student didn't leave and reportedly just stood in the corner watching the girls get changed. One of the girls told a local news station that the school sided with the trans student. She says anyone who is uncomfortable has to change in the bathroom. They want all the girls who feel uncomfortable, so pretty much 10 girls, to get changed in a single-style bathroom, which would take over 30 minutes, when if one person got changed separately, it would take a minute, like no extra time. School officials reportedly sent an email to parents saying the school has plenty of space where students who feel uncomfortable with the laws may change in privacy. They said they have to make the trans student feel safe under a state law. The law prohibits schools from barring students who identify as transgender from school facilities. However, the Vermont guideline also states that all students have a right to feel safe at school. Some lawmakers in Vermont are siding with the group of girls. Democratic Representative Jay Hooper said that it doesn't make sense to label a locker room based on traditional genders and then kick out the majority who fall under that gender. Republican Representative Ronnie Graham said he doesn't think asking teenage girls to change around a male is ever appropriate. The school superintendent, Lane Millington, told The Daily Signal about the issue. Where the policies and expectations are violated, we take disciplinary action. We also do our best to give victims supportive measures. He added that the school district can't comment on the issue because of privacy laws for students. On Tuesday, the school closed the locker room to all students on the team. Reporting by Arian Pastar. NTD News. Legendary country music star Loretta Lynn died today at the age of 90. The Country Music Hall of Famer passed away in her sleep at her home in Tennessee. Lynn launched her music career with no formal training in the 1960s. She lived in poverty during her early years and already had four children when she began singing. Her life in an abusive relationship inspired her to write Tell It Like It Is songs about women struggling. Lynn told her story of growing up in a poor family and marrying as a teenager in her number one 1970s hit, Coal Miner's Daughter. Coal Miner's Daughter became the title of her 1976 book and in 1980 was made into a TV movie of the same name. Her family has asked for privacy as they grieve and said a memorial will be announced later. And coming up in baseball, the regular season is nearly finished. But when it returns next spring, it could have a faster pace. NTD's Dave Martin talks to a baseball historian about the rule changes. That and more coming up. now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. 
Baseball's regular season has just two days left, and when it picks up again next spring, it could have a completely different look, or at least MLB is hoping so. The rule changes include a pitch clock, a limit on the number of pickoff attempts by the pitcher, and a ban on defensive shifts. Baseball historian and author Daniel Levitt says improving the pace of play is a big task for a pitch clock and sees a two-fold problem currently plaguing the game. One is I think the games have just gotten too long. And within that, there's not enough action within that game. Levitt, who recently co-authored the book Intentional Balk, which details cheating and innovation in baseball, says the focus of the game needs to shift to create more action. Because the focus is so much on can the, bat, can the pitcher strike the batter out. And so I think that to the degree you can put the emphasis on the pitcher as part of a defense and get the balls rolling around again, get base runners going, I think that that is important to helping the game. The proposed rule changes were already implemented in the minor leagues this year, and the result was a game that was shortened by an average of 25 minutes. Levitt says he measures the number of balls in play per hour, though, to track the pace of play. For 2021, it was about 15.6. If you're sitting at a baseball game for an hour, you're going to see about 15.6 balls in play. If you go back to 2011, that number is just a little bit over 18. And if you go all the way back to 1981, for example, so 40 years as we were talking about, it's 22. So it's like 50, it was 50% higher. Levitt, though, approves the rule changes overall and points to how aggressive teams were on the base paths 50 years ago as a model for the game today. Part of the fun, too, was not just that there was a lot more running, which is exciting, but that there was this variety among how the game was played as opposed to now where it's gotten much more homogenous. Meanwhile, tonight in sports features all 30 baseball teams in action with a trio of doubleheaders. One of those is a Yankees-Rangers matchup with Aaron Judge still needing one home run to break Roger Maris' record. Judge, the presumptive frontrunner for MVP, has just one home run since hitting number 60 back on September 20. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.